Blog Talk Radio. This week in health innovation, we are live this morning, day two at Hims in Las Vegas. Um, I am Dr. Phil Marshall, and I'm co-host of the program, and happy to be with you today. Um, I am uh, also co-founder uh, and chief product officer of Conversa Health, uh, which is the booth um, 11334 that we're coming to you today from. And uh, I'm very excited uh, to have the chance to meet. Um, Dr. Rasu Shrestha of UPMC, um, who is the Chief Innovation Officer of UPMC, as well as EVP of UPMC Enterprises. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Very excited to talk with you about what you're doing and everything that you're seeing at this exciting show. Really an um, unparalleled program, at least in the exhibit hall, compared to anything else in, in health IT, where um, old school companies as well as yeah. innovators come, uh, come together hopefully harmoniously. Uh, I want to start off um, with a little bit of background on uh, on what you've been doing at UPMC, some of the programs that you've spearheaded, some of the investments you made. would love to, to uh, kick it off understanding a little bit more about you. No, absolutely. So it's really interesting. So we're, we're here at HIMSS, uh, the Super Bowl of Health IT, right? and it's absolutely amazing the, uh, the, the number of uh, individual companies, organizations that are really focused in transforming the way that we're delivering care. Right? Um, at UPMC, which is a large a payer provider organization, we're a large academic organization, we do a lot of research, uh, our focus is really in purposeful innovation, in driving innovation uh, with a purpose towards addressing the, the most critical pain points that we see in the delivery of healthcare it in such a way that we're leveraging all of the assets that we as an organization bring to the table. So that's essentially what I do with the rest of my team. Um, and, and, and as part of the organization, what we do is we, we, we don't do this in isolation. We do this with the rest of UPMC. UPMC essentially is a living lab for everything that we're doing. We're the tip of the spear when it comes to co-investment and co-creation, honing in on those pain points and addressing the specifics of how we really transform the face of healthcare. I had the um, opportunity to work with UPMC when I led product strategy at WebMD and then also at Press Ganey. Yep. Um, and I learned that it was a very unique organization. Many people think of Kaiser Permanente as really being the uh, predominant integrated system across payment and delivery, but UPMC is really right up there, uh, a very unique organization in that way. But no doubt the payment of healthcare and the delivery of healthcare in your organization still has a number of pain points that you need to address. What are some of those main pain points that you believe innovation can help overcome? Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely right. I, I, you know, in, in healthcare, we have a number of different issues. You know, we're not used to change. Uh, we go with the tried and tested. Uh, there's a lot of complexity in healthcare. And I'm making overall statements, but this is true. It's important for us to understand that we, for some reason, have gotten really used to complexity. 
We like to make things complex. It's almost a comfort blanket that we wrap ourselves around with. Every time someone tries to innovate and yank that comfort blanket out, we pull it more closely together. But that's how we've done it. You know, that's the tried and tested. That's how healthcare has been built on in the last couple of centuries even, right? So here we are. We're trying to innovate. We're trying to think outside the box. We're trying to leverage principles of design thinking and fail-fast methodologies and trying to bring newer technologies and, and processes and, and, and methodologies to really say, all right, how do we take things to the next level? But the key thing in all of this is focus. Focus in terms of what we're doing, which means focus also in terms of what we're not doing. Focus in terms of how we're doing, which means clearly stating how we're not doing things as well, right? So at UPMC Enterprises, we're really focused in on four specific what we call domains. Uh, the first is really clinical tools, uh, leveraging data to drive towards better insights and the delivery of care at the point of care, right? So as physicians, ensuring that we're able to do that is really critical. Precision medicine, clinical decision support, imaging. The second is um, population health, which is really a buzzword at HEMS this year. Um, but our focus towards population health, and focus is the key word here, is really risk management. That's a payer and a payer provider system, really looking at the delivery of, uh, of care across you know, populations of patients that are at risk and ensuring that we do this intelligently. Third is really around consumer, understanding the consumer, making sure that we move the care from the bricks and mortar hospitals to really the consumers and empowering them to take charge of their health and wellness, which is really critical. And then the fourth is business services and infrastructure, squeezing the waste out of the delivery of healthcare. So focus is absolutely critical. No doubt that self-imposed complexity um, is found throughout each of those four domains. Yeah. It's really interesting, I think, as I walk the hall, to, to really see this juxtaposition of companies that have been entrenched in healthcare, the EHR companies, mm -hmm. the big health IT companies, mm -hmm. And then the innovative companies that are really growing up um, relatively new in care management and population health and patient engagement. Mm -hmm. um, now, you, you actually described different domains um, where you had clinical mm -hmm. tools and clinical workflow, then population health, mm -hmm. and then consumer engagement. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of effort right now to make sure that that's really one process, mm -hmm. that they aren't necessarily separate sure. from one another. Sure. At UPMC, um, what are you looking at uh, is uh, with making the patient and helping the patient be more an equal part of that ongoing process, perhaps in a more collaborative and, and continuous way? Yeah, so, so a couple of things. First and foremost, just to address what you mentioned earlier, um, you know, there are the EHR vendors and there are lots of vendors that are up and coming. Um, I, I don't think anyone... There's a few here at the show yeah, here. a few here. Uh, yeah. This year. Absolutely. I, I think there are four or five booths this year at the HIMSS <laughs> show. By the way, Indeed. for anybody who's listening to this or seeing us uh, on the video, of course, I'm kidding. If you've not been to HIMSS, you cannot imagine uh, the behemoth the show that this is from an exhibit hall standpoint. That's the reason I call <laughs> it the Super Bowl of Health IT. 40,000 people, if not more, is ridiculous. But... Um, you know, whether it's EHR vendors who've been doing this for a while or whether it's startup companies and others that are really trying to, quote, unquote, disrupt the delivery of healthcare, um, I, I don't think innovation is unique to just one group of these vendors or organizations. I, I think whether you've been doing this for a while or whether you're new, um, you can innovate. You can think outside the box. You can really try to hone in on the specifics of what it means to deliver care. And, and those are the sorts of partnerships that we're trying to go after, mm. right? 
Um, we truly believe that companies. You can, so let me just see if I understand what you're sure. saying. And that is, you're looking for the companies that have proven they can execute, but are still innovating. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's a really important focus. It's really important to leverage the assets that we bring as an organization to ensuring that we're honing in on the right types of partnerships. I truly believe that the future of healthcare is going to be built on the shoulders of the strongest of partnerships. Right? And by that, um, our focus is really in ensuring that we're able to find the right matches. It's not just about you know, signing a memorandum of understanding and doing a little proof of concept around a little pilot and taking out a press release. It's about making significant change, mm-hmm. moving the needle in a transformational way in the way that we're delivering care. So rather than just having a smattering of pilots that might test this, that, or the other, mm-hmm. you're really looking um, for something that has staying power, that as long as you prove it out initially, it can scale uh, and you can roll it out in a, in a broader way. Absolutely. And, and we do this intelligently, or we try to at least, right? So we, we don't do this on our own. We do this with the rest of UPMC, my clinical colleagues across UPMC, folks that are really pushing for quality, our brilliant individuals at the health plan, right? what, what we, the researchers, the, the, the physicians, the trainees that we have, the nurses. Right? So what we do is we have this collaborative process where we're looking at all of these different opportunities. We're trying to hone in on the pain points. And we're trying to make sure that we're able to focus on the specifics of how we how we deliver the uh, the, the innovations and the transformation. On top of all of that, um, our strategy at EPMC Enterprises is really one of honing on on these partnerships with co-investment and co-creation. Mm. Right, and that's important. Putting our money where our mouth mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is important. And for that's us. that's part of the EPMC Enterprise. Uh, enterprises mission, yep. no yep. doubt. Yep. What are some of the uh, innovations that UPMC Enterprises has uh, has brought to uh, market or helped help to come to market? So across those four domains that I described, and I, as purposeful, we're purposeful in calling it domains, not silos or even pillars. Sure. Uh, because there's a lot of overlap. More of a Venn diagram. <laughs> That's exactly right. There's a lot of overlap between the domains, but across each of those domains are specific investments and co-creation opportunities, things that we're so big, medium, small, right? things that we're growing organically, but also partnerships that we've honed in on over time. A couple of successes that I'll quote out. Um, so in the, in, in the area of risk management and population health, you know, as a payer provider organization, we've been doing this for a while, right? Um, so about five years ago, we took essentially the nuts and bolts of the system that we've been using at the health plan at UPMC, um, and along with the advisory board and TPG as the third investors, we started a new company called Evelyn Health. Sure. Right. And last year, Evelyn, you're the one. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's UPMC. Many people have heard about Evelyn now. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So, what we did with all of the uh, the brilliance that the health plan brought into this, the work that the advisory board and um, and, and the funding and, and the insights that TPG uh, brought to the table as well, was we took the blueprint that made the UPMC health plan as successful as it is today with 2.9 million members in a network of over 11,000 physicians. It's just absolutely remarkable what we've managed to do. We took that blueprint and we put it into this company. And this company, in a matter of about four and a half, five years, went IPO last year. And right. it went IPO, is valued at $1.2 billion. Congratulations. So, thank you very much. So the types of successes that we try to hone in on um, you know, are, are, are varied. Uh, it's across all of these different uh, domains. And we're really also excited about some of the newer announcements that we've made in terms of some of the strategic investments that we're putting into the best uh, that we know will address the clinical pain points and the operational pain points that we're facing at UPMC, but the rest of the world needs as well. 
Well, we're just about out of time. So let's wrap up. Um, as you uh, have walked the floor and gone to, no doubt, some of the sessions, what are you most excited about with what you've seen and heard here at this show? Um, so it's interesting. When you come to a show like this, you know, there, there, there are a lot of buzzwords. You, know, you get blinded by buzzwords. Everyone's, Population health yeah. in this booth is a drinking game. So. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, you talk about buzzwords like population health, data, analytics. Patient engagement. Patient engagement. <laughs> Innovation is now a buzzword, you know. And so I think it's really important to not get blinded by buzzwords. I think it's really important for us to focus, for us to really go beneath, ask the hard questions, right? Uh, don't, don't gloss over you know, whether it's products or partnerships or opportunities by these buzzwords that get thrown in your eyes, right? Really ask the hard questions, right? And understand what it means to um, to, to, to implement some of these solutions. I'm right? still going to ask you to name one thing that you're excited about. <laughs> so what I'm excited about is the possibility of leveraging the power of the data to get mm-hmm. at meaningful insights. Okay. And we've been struggling as an industry um, uh, for over a decade in interoperability. Uh, the ONC last year announced uh, the 10-year interoperability roadmap, right? So what I'm excited about is getting interoperability right, but really focusing in on workflow, focusing in on uh, design thinking, making sure that we're able to leverage technologies like natural language processing and machine learning and patent recognition mm-hmm. To go after structured and unstructured data. To get data. the kind of insights that before were not really that possible. Absolutely. Connecting the dots across these disparate silos that we've gone, we've gotten so accustomed to go live with, right? And saying, how do you liberate the data? How do you liquefy the data so that you can actually connect uh, Todd dots? Park would be happy to hear that. Well, absolutely, <laughs> right? And getting at insights and making those insights relevant back at the point of decision making. That's what I'm really excited about. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, Dr. Estresta with UPMC. Um, up next is Dr. David Nace, so stay tuned for that. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what, by the way, what is the pink box? I, mean, I see them over there. I can grab a pair of
We're broadcasting live from the first booth, 11334, lower level of the MC Kevin Hall. And David Dan, it was the wicked David May. David May is a, a leading position expert for many years. And uh, we're going to talk about data. And they brought you on board to do smarter, better data in health because we have a tremendous shift in databases. And if we don't understand the underlying databases, as, as you told me, that uh, we won't figure out how to manage the data we have, much less the Tremendous amount of data that's going to come off the omics as we profile that for people with cancer and other conditions. So, David, why don't you tell us about this uh, new company that uh, pulled you in to build a entire healthcare vertical for? So it's uh, it's been an amazing journey in my life as a physician taking care of patients and then working in the industry. I've tried to skate where the puck's going to be. Right? Yeah. So 25, 30 years ago, I thought employers would roll after the Clinton Health Plan didn't work out. And I was involved, actually, a little bit with that Clinton Health Plan, trying to help them out. So I actually went to employer benefits, working with employers, new health care. Then I saw managed care coming. So I went to the managed care side, and I was with Aetna United, chief medical officer. And then that was starting to fade, and I thought, technology, that's the future, right? So I went to McKesson, past 10 years, yeah. building applications and everything. And we all know things aren't interoperable. You know, healthcare is the only industry to fully digitalize. It was the last one to digitalize, but has created no value. The cost still going up the same rate. Quality overall is not all that much better. So it's very interesting. So I've been scratching my head thinking, what's the next one? What's wrong in Mudville? And I thought, the data. That everybody knows data is going to drive everything. Why can't we use all the data? Did you know that 80% of everyone's data is not currently even tapped or used? I did not know that. 80%. 80%. Absolutely. And, and that's generally in all industries. And you know what? I think you're just talking about the medical or health data that people no, have. No, right? generally in all industries. All, all industries. Data, yeah, all industries. But if we healthcare take, is worse. If we take the healthcare perspective, data that may be on my, my fitness or my purchasing behavior at the store, that's definitely not looked at by most health systems. Actually, that's even a worse story because if you look at an enterprise, a hospital, a health system, a health plan, a government, a state, I'm talking about the data that they have right. within their enterprise. Correct. 80% is not used. If you look at the other stuff you just mentioned outside, it's even worse. Correct. They're not right. even touching that. So I understand people, see, I believe this is about life. It's not about health and it's not about medical care because when, a system, when, I, when my condition is treated properly, my life is better. That's right. So we're in a life business, and we're not looking at people in the context of their family, their social environment, and all the other things that contribute or distract so how are we ever going to do that if we can't even handle the data we have within our structure? Well, that's my question to you. Right. So I stumbled across. I literally was out in Silicon Valley looking for the next thing I wanted to do, interviewing people, venture capitalists and stuff. And I ran into a guy for a company that had been plugging away at this for a while and said, you know there's a generational shift about ready to occur in the way data is housed and managed that will explode things. So I, I did a lot of history, and you know, technology shifts occur once every 20 or 30 years. We had mainframes in the 50s and 60s. 
The big shift occurred in 1984 when Oracle developed its version 7, which was a reliable and consistent version of the relational database, just like like Excel spreadsheet, rows and columns. And today, 94% of every data in the world, every industry for everything, is managed in relational databases. A 30-year-old technology that was built for problems of the 60s and 70s. And so things are just, over the past couple years, starting to explode in a small way with non-relational databases that can do all kinds of neat things. Now, I'm not talking about the Hadoop and analytics of the world. And as you know, Gartner has already said, 80% of what's out there in analytics adds no value, doesn't do anything. But everybody's trying to do it. I'm talking about running your business. So can I convert relational databases that we have lived with that you said, do today. can I convert it into unrelational databases that can be effectively mined? Absolutely not. So new technology and disruptive technologies end up replacing old technology. And always, whether you're talking about steam, you know, sail ships migrating to steam, right. steam ships or whatever, that conversion occurs quickly, but it doesn't convert. You can't take a sail ship and make it a steam Well, ship. can I take the data out of relational databases and put it in the new structure? Yes and yes. So um, you can so actually... I need the whole new structures, but I can get the data out of the old structures and put it in the new structures. You structure. can use the data immediately, and you can use it in any form, any way, any time, cheaper and faster like all disruptive technologies do. So, company, so the move, as I understand it, the move from relational to unrelational databases is disruptive. Absolutely. Hugely disruptive. Disruptive. And it's absolutely needed because the volume of data is growing exponentially. Well, it's not even that. The relational database requires a specific structure kind of data, right? Yep. And now we have all kinds of data. So it's not even the volume, the volume, the velocity, the veracity. It's, and the world in the past two years has created more data than all of human history. So it's not just the type, it's the type, the volume, the speed. And we're doubling every two or three years, correct? Even faster. So this is an issue is what do we do? So right now, if you take any organization, hospital, health plan, their information technology department, their CIO, their backlog in queues because right. the relational database can't handle it. And even then, they're only able to use less than 10% right. of their data. So um, four years ago, there were four or five companies in this space. Now there's 60. So the beginning of the hockey stick is starting to happen. So some people call this space not only SQL, no SQL. It's not a great term. I use the term non-relational to say this is the new technology beyond relational. And there's lots of different types. It's a whole different story, but you should come and learn about it. Yes, I will. And um, the name of the company you're working with now is? So I work with MarkLogic. MarkLogic. MarkLogic, M-A-R-K-L-O-G-I-C. So and the interesting thing. In we, New York? Nope. Silicon, Silicon Valley. Valley. Right. So we've been around for uh, 14 years. 14 years. Organic growth started by a founder who was a brilliant visionary, uh, good friends with the folks at Google, interested in search. And his question was, how come I can go on Google and find anything in the world? And I go to work and I can't find a darn thing. And that's still true today for most people. Think about it. I'm thinking about it. Right. And also Google, when you ask things, it then prompts you new things fast. Right? If you think about the way we do analytics, we don't do it that way. We preconceive the question, answer, and maybe get an answer later. Right. So how do we make data instruct us to make curious exploration, right? And that's what this new sort of technology does. So, um, so Mark, have- Mark Logic's been around a long time, but okay. it was adopted by the intelligence community. They were early adopters of technology. Terrible references. 
and that's where a lot of the organic growth occurred. And so after Mark, September 11th, Smart Logic really started growing, and just recently has begun exploding. And so right now, in other industries, J.P. Morgan is running their bank on us, Deutsche Bank, uh, Healthcare.gov. The reason we were able to save it at the last minute is they brought us in. We run the data hub for all of IRS first time of the renovation, second time around. Well, there was no second time, actually. They launched, and they've been successful since, but we helped them go live right. when oh, they right. weren't going to be able to do it with a traditional Correct. relational approach so, after three years. So other examples of health, any health systems or health plans using your Well, so this is today? very interesting. So there's lots of other industries worldwide that have been using this approach. Healthcare is always the last, right? Yeah. So the folks from um, some of the large uh, health plans that were called in on the healthcare.gov save got to know our technology are starting to rapidly deploy it. So we're in two of the largest five health plans. The pharmaceutical industry is exploding using this for real-world evidence, going out, tracking people with Facebook. and. Wow, and, you're the greatest unkept secret of the show, I think. That's right. So all that stuff we do for the intelligence community, counterterrorism work, you know, uh, intel workers in the field using laptops on our technology, that stuff people don't... So we don't do you even have promote. a booth at him 16 We do. You do? Where is that? It's two rows over and down. What's the number? What's... And uh, I don't have the number right hey, on Can you look up the number for the Mark, Logic. Mark Logic booth? Thank you. We'll get that out on the show. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, so that's that's really exciting because uh, that's going to revolutionize our ability to use data yes. and apply it, right. which should help us uh, lower costs and improve quality. And that's, that's exactly it. So, one one six five zero. That's one one six five zero. It's right around us. And there's four or five people from Mark Logic there, ready and standing. To so my associate Fred Goldson's going to go kick their tires later because uh, he loves data. He loves databases. And this whole new generation of undata relational databases. So is you right know, up his alley. you know what I often tell people. Like I'll meet with CIOs because most of the most of the people that do information management, they're sort of no one world, right? Right. So I often ask them when they start to ask me, they're interested and they say, well, How do I learn about this? I say, Stop. Remember the movie The Matrix, right? Yes. They had a choice. He sat down on the couch and said, Look, I need you to make a choice. You can take the red pill or the blue pill. If you take the blue pill, the world will continue the world you know it. If you take the red pill, you have to be willing to go down the rabbit hole. And the world is not the way you see it today. When you look at these new technologies, just like going from sail ships to steamships, you have to reconceive what technology is about and how data is used. And it really is a totally different perspective. So that's what I would ask people to do when they're going to the booth. Keep your mind open. Be willing to look at things very different. Don't start asking questions in the old world and ask questions about how you solve your problem. Okay, so we got about two minutes to go. And this is... Uh I love revealing secrets that really shouldn't be secrets and getting the work out, word out about Mark Logic. And um, what's the key advice that you would give to a CIO or their health technology team that are now sitting? They just invested billions of dollars in Epic built on the old relationship, right? Epic databases, the relational database, right? All the data stored in a relational database. So what's your recommendation to those organizations who've dumped billions of dollars in the 80s technology? Right. So they're actually not 80s technology. As you know, Epic has newer technology. 
and many of the other organizations, HIEs or people that are doing claims processes for payers or pharma, there's still new technologies, but they sit on a database. So at the they bottom, sit on the structured right. relational database, and that's what people. Right. So what right. advice? So I would actually give, give the advice to the business teams, not necessarily to the CIO. Okay. And, and so what do, what did we learn over time? Culture eats strategy every day for lunch. Yes. Well, within an IT organization, they all know one way of doing things. So going right at that, it may not be the best way to do it. Maybe going to the business side and saying, hey, there is something going on in the industry. There's a shift. There's a technological shift. And you should know about it because here's what you could do as a result of that shift. Right now, all they do is send orders to the IT so, shop, and they're behind. Right. So the business side needs to identify their requirements that would lead the IT people to demand and require unrelational databases. Not at all. I would actually recommend collaboration. So I think the business team, the C-suite, the business team, needs to work with their CIO and their colleagues in the IT department to really look and understand this new technology this non-relational technology, and there's many companies offering it, and understand what can be done, right. that the world can be different. Thank you, David. Sure. Mark Logic's the company, and you're building the healthcare vertical for them. That's Thank you. Good. They're lucky Thank to you. have you. Am I, am I doing Daniel or his friend? All right, let's go. You want to look at the camera occasionally? Sure. Yeah, you were. You kind of. I looked at your shot before. It was a little high. You were showing half the sky. I'll take. I'll take off Neil Jordan's badge. Yeah. I don't work for Microsoft now. Uh, so they're doing some cool stuff, by the way. I was in Seattle and met some other guys. Microsoft Health is actually. You're right. You're live. Oh, we're live. We're live. <laughs> Hi there. You walked into a live studio. Excellent. Better than being a dead studio. Uh, Daniel Kraft, uh, you are an unbelievable physician leader. Not only are you a visionary, but you're really helping people execute from where we are today with, I think, some blocking and tackling in terms of getting to the future that we can all create. Uh, you're an incredible speaker and uh, author in the work you're doing with the Exponential University. So uh, I know you're in town for a talk, but um, what are your thoughts about where that, since technology enables us to solve problems, where do you think we are we just heard about the data gap. Where do you think the industry is, and what what are kind of the top three prescriptions that we need to do to uh, move forward to create our exponential future? Great question. I think you look around here, and it's overwhelming the amount of ideas, people, technology, data, wearables, huge you know EMR booths upstairs, um, and I think we're in a bit of a perfect storm of technology trying to mash up with healthcare and reboot it in a sense. But, you know, in terms of prescriptions, I mean, one of them is that technology is just one piece of it. Right. You can have the best tech, the greatest app, the greatest drug, unless it gets to the patient in that last mile, it's a bit of a so what. And often it's not about the technology, it's the culture and the incentives, which are often pretty misaligned. Um, and in the U.S., there's so many healthcare systems. You can do things differently if it's a fee-for-service or a a Geisinger, a Kaiser, even a VA. So I think one prescription is for any you know, new technology or startup or even larger entities that are innovating is to see where the map is. You know, where's the unmet need? Who's going to pay for it? What's the culture of, let's say, the clinician or the nurse or the patient who may or may not even want to ever use this technology today in its current sort of silo? Um, well, so our first one is a map. So a map of like knowing, knowing where the players are. What, what are their carrots and their sticks? 
um, how do you really fit in? Because you might have a best new widget, but it may not fit through the hospital room door. It's like a bad example. But, you know, some things are built um, not always in context. So technology well, needs to be in context with both the, the working environment, which might be different in a clinic versus a hospital uh, versus an ER, and also with the alignment of the individual incentives for that clinician, patient, nurse. So that's prescription one. Prescription two would be, you know, we're in this exponential age. I chair medicine at Singularity University and run this program, you know, of called Exponential Medicine. And, you know, what's happening in terms of data, tech, wearables, sensors, genomics, 3D printing is moving very quickly. And people don't quite grasp what's going to be here. VR, for example, AR, in just a couple of years. So if you build something for today, you better have a map of what's going to be here in two years in terms of low-cost genomics or the power of, you know, what is it, the next uh, G5 network. Um, so you're building into the future, not sort of stuck in 2016. Right. And I guess the third prescription would be uh, the most exciting innovations happen at the mashup of technologies uh, and unmet need. And so, you know, the you know, overused term about the Uber, uberfication of healthcare, some of them are in this uh, venue here, is, you know, Uber didn't invent the smartphone, GPS, online maps, online payment, limbers or cabs, they connect to the dots. So some of the most powerful, I think, innovations come from not inventing technologies, but matching them up in smart ways on that exponential trend. So I think the concept in, of Uberizing medicine doesn't apply in the macro level. However, when you look at specific market segments, and I'll give you an example, it absolutely does. So there's a company called Igbo that I came across. It's the Uber of phlebotomy. Sure. And so they'll send someone out to take a blood sample anywhere through a virtual network of qualified people. And so in that very specific app, then I think, oh, so if we stop using Uber, if we look at specific market segments and say, how does the Uberization or other approaches, how can we reduce the middleman? Because the biggest problem we have in healthcare, it's not necessarily that we pay doctors too much or hospitals too much. We have too many middle layers right. in there, 50% the doctor's office, overhead, health insurance plans, 50% of the healthcare dollars going to administration of some kind in the process. It's 30% or so, I think, and also we're still using fax machines to you know, send claims in and all that overhead. You're absolutely right. So when I think about Uberization, I think it more of what does it match the need of transparency, ease, you know, the ease of payment, ease of seeing where your limo or taxi or car is coming from, rating the, the driver or the doctor or the nurse or the phlebotomist, getting rid of not only the middleman, but that sort of friction layer, which Correct. is so confusing in healthcare. And I, if I get a medical bill and I'm a physician, I still have <laughs> trouble understanding what it means. And so, um, let alone still trying to make a doctor's appointment at Stanford, you know, where I'm based, still requires a phone call and pressing one and staying on hold. And so, I think um, I think Uberization is lowering the barriers and re reducing those cost levels. And the phlebotomy piece is a great example. That's one piece of a. We have so much need to do lab exams that so you need to bring. Um, little lady to the to the to the place to get the blood draw when you can bring it to her uh, and then when you connect the dots between all these sort of silos ubers you can get a lot of efficiency and a lot more engagement right um, so how do organizations move forward what are some of the key ways to apply these principles you know people think futures right way out there we're always right and we're always wrong but there's that middle tier of one to five years. And I think one of the points you made earlier is you really have to have a sense of the technologies likely in the next five years and the rate of the adoption. So the real, like, how fast will people and what segment, it's not whether they're adopting, what segment's likely to adopt virtual reality as part of their life, just like people 
of all ages now are adopting different types of apps on their mobile phone. Mm -hmm. So it's really getting down to some layer of, of specifics in that projection to figure out how to lay a foundation that's flexible for growth, right? Yeah, you want to, it's hard to say, but future-proof a little bit. If you're building a new hospital, like Packard Children's, where Stanford is already out of date 20 years later, and the walls don't let Wi-Fi move through, so or the piping might not have been there for high-speed uh, Ethernet when it was built 25 years ago. So if you're building a new um, clinic or ER or hospital or platform, you have to be a little bit mindful about what's coming. Let's say it's, you know, containing your genomic data or other omics or your digital exhaust information, which is going to go up exponentially in terms of availability and lower cost. Maybe you need to build your data infrastructure to, to have hold room for omics, for example. Or um, if we know that we're at the, you know, higher speed mobile phone networks, what are you going to do in terms of porting, you know, full on live streaming virtual reality as opposed to having it connected to a, a hard line today? I mean, those are small examples. Uh, but it's hard for people to see past their quarter to quarter. They're often incentivized not to think two or five years down at sort of what's going to be beneficial early. So I guess one, I mean, the, the healthcare leaders need to be having a bit of this exponential mindset and um, also being the early experimenters. It could be something as simple, you don't need to wait for Oculus Rift to, right. to be doing VR. You can get a Google Cardboard. That's already being used for doing medical simulation at low cost. Uh, so the Samsung VR gear with a pretty amazing you know, surgical uh, training where you'd go into different parts of a case. I mean, amazing things you could do with very low cost technology today. Augmented reality is coming quickly. Yeah. I just saw a demo from a company called Meta. It was at the TED conference last week. And, and that IO 411, Walgreens is, is piloting with a company called IO sure. 411. And the ability, I think, in five years, we're not going to have screens anymore. We're going to be throwing them away. You'll have this your virtual screen right in front of you. You can move them around you, spin around. You'd have one screen over here, your patient data here, or you're in the operating room and, and you're the surgeon. You have your checklist, your, your CT scan data all around you. Some of these are, you know, HoloLens is already coming out. Um, there are others. That, that's going to transform our work lives, our uh, entertainment lives, and healthcare in powerful ways. We'll look back at a Google Glass and look, wow, that looks so antique. Just like if you had to go and use a smartphone, right. or an iPhone 1 from only eight years ago. And that's transformed the healthcare world right. uh, dramatically. So, so, so you have an annual meeting in a program, Exponential Medicine, mm -hmm. and it, it's coming up in the fall, right? Sure. Can you tell us about Exponential Medicine and... Uh, and maybe that you use the term digital is gone. So right. exponential medicine and, and how does it help people move forward in the future, both as the program and the conference? Sure. So I've been sharing medicine at Singularity University since it started in 2009. And I think we found at our smaller programs, executive programs, that everyone's interested in healthcare from the personal level or from the business level. So five years ago, I started exponential medicine to bring people out of their silos. You know, a lot of doc, I'm an oncologist, I'll go to ASH or ASCO, right. other folks, the cardiologists go to cardiology, mean the pharma people go to pharma meetings, but it's rare that you blend clinicians and researchers and biotech folks and device and investors all That's in one place. Biggest problem. So the, the mission of exponential medicine is to get people out of their silos, mixing it up and seeing what's the cutting edge and where's the exponential puck going. So we're holding it this year, we all sixth program back at the Hotel Del Coronado in beautiful San Diego, October 8th through 11th. Exponentialmedicine.com has all the data, has talks from prior years. And what's unique about it is we give people a lens. So what's the cutting edge of 3D printing, robotics, AI, nanotech, drones, uh, big data, omics, um, and where it is now and where things are coming and, and where the mashups happen. And it's been quite impactful. Companies have started there from medical tricorder companies like Scanadu to Centrain, which is doing sort of the internet of things, bring, bring, melding with big data. Uh, we get small companies, big companies, startups. A lot of sparks happen there because we mix it up not just with content, but breakouts, bonfires on the beach, silent disco. So you get 
people out of their usual headspace um, with time to sort of blend and mod. So um, it's been quite magical. It strikes me that a team from a health system should bring a cross-section of clinicians right. because you're really great. And one of the biggest things that I've seen is that there's there's so much talent in these organizations, but they're operating, I don't want to call them silos, but they're just doing what they do as cardiologists or physical therapists, and, and bringing them together helps figure out how to create solutions and support patients across the continuum before and after and during their whole life. And cross-training, there's something that's being applied in sort of um, cardiology, like now there's sort of virtual angiographies could be applied to other clinical fields, or you might see a big data application from one company uh, applied in radiology that could be applied to pathology, another area of uh, machine learning. You're going to see disruption occur in terms of the sort of fields of uh, radiology, dermatology, uh, pathology, which are very sort of pattern-based. So um, what we like to do in experimental medicine is open people's eyes to what's already here, let them cross-fertilize with folks already doing innovation so they can learn and, and, and amplify and get to the future faster and smarter and not reinventing the wheel. Uh, and it's hard to get that exponential mindset because our brains are so wired in a linear fashion. So Daniel Kraft, uh, leading physician in helping cross and break down silos and figure out new solutions. William Gibson, he coined the term cyberspace, said the future's already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed. What's your closing words of wisdom for our audience, health system executives, health plan executives, uh, in navigating and really inventing the future. Love that quote. You know, there are things in my pocket that are, are here but not distributed. And I would argue that the, the healthcare executives of the world should be the ones sort of, again, not predicting future but inventing it and creating it by being somewhat early adopters. You don't need to distribute it across your whole hospital system, but you might have a clinic that could use a connected blood pressure cuff. Those have been existing for right. years to improve outcomes. It doesn't need to be all through pilots, but you know, see what's out there. Start to integrate it in with your healthcare uh, teams. It's not just the clinicians, it's the nurses, it's the engaged patients. It's becoming a, a data donor, uh, unlocking some of those silos to share information and crowdsource it so that we can get to the, the, the future in a smarter, more efficient way. All right, one last question. Most promising tech that people need to think about? I think this is the year of starting to connect the dots, and part of that is through the exponentials of of big data and machine learning. Um, companies like Jeremy Howard's and Lytic, and they were at Exponential Medicine, are now able to take existing radiology scans or pathology scans, use machine learning to figure out that is a small cell lung cancer, bad image. Um, the ability now to have so much data come in in a digital form and now start to make sense of it using machine learning is going to be hugely impactful. And I think people underestimate its power. And now we're blending that with AI, robotics. Um, and it's going to change the way we practice healthcare, from how we work up patients to how we do therapy to how we run clinical trials to how you staff your hospitals. Um, and it'll start connecting the dots for us. So that's, I think, one area that people need to be Great. really aware of. Thank you for coming. This is Health Innovation Media, broadcasting live from the Conversa booth, 11334. And we just had Daniel Kraft in our open-air studio, uh, Inventing the Future. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, and come check us out at exponentialmedicine.com. And Cheers. we're going to have a transition. My uh, brother from another mother, Fred Goldstein, is going to come up and uh, do another interview with Karen. Okay, see you. Thanks. Thanks.
Well, Fred, you got a very exciting guest coming up. One of the leading uh, thought leaders in population health, as I understand, uh, Karen, right? And she's with a... Vital IBM company. Yeah, we're excited about this. Uh, it's interesting. You know, we always talk about the power of social media, and it's clearly something we've been trying to use and leverage. And so it just so happens I uh, saw some folks from IBM Watson tweeting, and I decided to ask them, hey, can we get you on the show? Lo and behold, they bring somebody we both know, Karen, right. who's an expert in population health, and we'll have a good little discussion with her. Well, she's been an expert like you, Fred. Uh, you know, population health, we've been do- we used to call it disease management, right? <laughs> we did. So that was the subset. And then of we the got chronic. called it health promotion, and then we put this big label on it, population health. Beginning of the day, it's just all health, right? Absolutely. And, absolutely. Uh, How do you people- maximize it? Right. But now we have this uh, buzzword that everybody's jumping on, population health. But Karen has been at Vitel for a while. Yes. And before that, uh, doing pop, what disease management, population health. Yeah, it's really a great background. You know, bringing that healthcare and expertise inside IT companies. Oftentimes, you see these products coming out of Silicon Valley that are these whiz bang IT products, but they haven't brought the healthcare expertise in. And when they take it to market, it's like, um, that's not quite what we want to do, or it doesn't give us the data we want. Whereas if you bring it in early enough. You can create incredible things by leveraging that well, advanced that, technology. That's exactly what David Nance was talking about. David Nance, a, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, talking about bringing uh, a physician in to help him do the healthcare verticals. Great. That sounds good. And I know, um, you know, it's interesting because Esther Dyson said at one of the conferences years ago, you know, to the Silicon Valley young guns who are building all this stuff, you know, I'll come back in two years, you won't be here. So, right. uh, so we're going to make a, bring that technology We're going to make so. a quick. Uh, you know what? The, these devices are so addictive. Look at this. We just can't. You know, we're we're living we're living screens these days, Fred. We are. Do you think it's going to get worse? Except, hey, Daniel just said we're going to get rid of screens because they'll just be virtual in front They're of our eyes. They're going to embed it into your head. It's going to be <laughs> just gonna... implanted, and you will see it through your neurons. That's it. We right. won't have anything in front of us. Insertables. Going we're going to start doing insertables. We're going to start doing virtual, complete virtual interviews. The whole thing will be completely embedded. Well, and we're going to stimulate the telepathic capabilities of our brain through uh, nano-augmented neurons, correct? And go after, what was that yesterday with Dr. Xiong Sun, the uh, micro-cancer... Micro-channels into the cancer. I, I, right. I think I it's up on the Twitter stream. I have to go back and look at it. Yeah, it's been quite a bit. Busy morning this morning. I had a good time. I uh, walked around a couple of booths, attended a population health presentation by one of the vendors here, and uh, spent a little bit of time over at... Um, Healthogen, looking at their platform as well, which was interesting. Their uh, care management platform and their uh, ACO. Did you see active system. health management up there? I haven't had a chance yet, but um, this afternoon is going to be the booth run, and we're going to hit as many as we can to get some good insights into it. Well, let's them. go up and look at active health management. I've had a chance to work with them on a, a major part of the Obama Precision Medicine. Oh, absolutely. Proposal. That sounds great. So, so we'll uh, do that. I think we've got Karen about ready to join Karen us here in the booth. So come on in. Have a seat. And uh, yes, sure. So we're just doing a little pre-game warm-up here with Fred and Karen, and uh, yeah, active health management is interesting. There. Providing health promotion programs, uh, wellness, care management services off their care engine, 
for uh, over 3 million Americans. They actually work 12 states supporting their employee populations, and they have 20 million people in their data analytics database. So what were you just talking about? I missed that. I was talking about my work with Active Health Management. Um, and Active Health Management, we teamed with them. Uh, I helped them team with the Nova Health Systems and the Nova Center for Personalized Health in submitting a proposal for the uh, Precision Medicine Initiative of NIH right. uh, for the Technology Center, which is really the communication effort. And if people haven't gotten to the details of the Precision Medicine Initiative, the $215 million that President Obama has allocated was roughly 180000 They put out six RF, uh, RFPs. Uh, they've let two of the proposals and the other four for enrollment centers, for cohort. So NIH proposes to get blood samples, urine samples, right. and saliva samples from a million Americans to create a genetic profile. So let me, but, ask but you let me say one thing in this. Most NIH projects takes your data, they do the research, and they publish it. This intends to have a longitudinal bidirectional interaction with the patient that over five data. Yeah, yeah. to data, data back right. about the genetic about implications they, for their health, and not only the genomic data, but then p taking wearable data. So, so let me ask you this. As that initiative goes, how does that potentially impact what 23andMe is trying to do and others that are potentially doing these um, genetic you know, mashups of all the data and, use, and creating knowledge out of that? Well, 23andMe is bordering not I'm doing medical. So right. True. So we're moving in for, into a medical Until prescription. Until they get to the point where they can. Correct. Great. Well, I think we're all set here to go with Karen. Yes, we're all good. Hold on. So fantastic. We're glad you're able to join us today here at the Health Innovation Media booth at Conversa, booth number 1111-11334 here in uh, the HIMSS uh, exhibit hall. So, Karen, it's a pleasure to have you on. We're, I'm really glad you're here. It's been a while since we've it seen has each been other. A while, Fred. And this we sort great. of go back a while within the pop health DM industry, don't we? With some old pals from when it first started. <laughs> That's many right. years ago. So, it, it was very funny when I reached out and to uh, IBM Watson, and they said, Yeah, we have someone who could talk to you. It's Karen. Well, I know Karen. <laughs> That's what I so, said. this was perfect. So, I'm really glad you're here. So, tell us yeah. a little bit about what you're doing and your role in Fitel. Oh, I have such a good time at Fitel, which is now an IBM company. Right. And um, the best fun I've had is working with the front line of primary care practices, helping them transform for value. So, I know IBM has really been doing a lot of neat stuff. They've been aggregating a bunch of different companies together, and it seems like they're they're really looking to combine that strong healthcare expertise with that incredible IT expertise you would think they already have, and, and creating some neat stuff. So when you work with primary care doctors, what are you bringing to them? So the first thing we're bringing to them is the technology that will enable care teams to actually see what, how they're doing on their performance metrics to actually identify the patients who are high risk or rising risk and then be able to use automated programs to reach out to these people so that they don't have to do all that heavy lifting and drudgery that takes them away from actually doing what they love to do and that is coaching patients on how to do better with their health. So it's leveraging the technology as a, a platform to take off some of the workload, improve the process flow, Absolutely. et cetera, and provide them with unique insights into their patients. Absolutely. So let me give you some examples. So one thing we do, which is also, by the way, gets auto credit for NCQA PCMH, so give a plug for that, is that um, our, 
we take in multiple sources of data, we can identify every patient who has a care gap, but against evidence-based guidelines. And we look and see if they've had an appointment in the, in the last six months or one coming up in the next two months, and we can send out an elegant message in the name of their physician, not their employer, not their health plan, but their physician, telling them it's time for them to schedule a follow-up appointment. All happens behind the scenes. Nobody's running around like with their hair on fire looking for the list of people who have um, overdue mammograms or right. overdue it, tests. It, it, it's a little bit advanced from the days when we were doing Excel-based registries in a sense, right? Exactly. And you've now created the logic on the backside to allow all that to flow. Yes, right. absolutely. It's continuous. It's in the background. It happens all the time. And it's still, since we're not going to be fully in a value-based world anytime soon, meaning that fee-for-service revenue still matters, so when these calls go out and people call back, that generates income for the visits that they schedule, and it helps to improve the quality metrics. So it's a win-win-win for everybody. We also have additional products that bring, uh, that can integrate data across multiple EMRs, multiple systems, and really show the care teams exactly, and physicians too, by the way, who some of them do like to look and see how they're doing, on all of these quality metrics. Luckily, the Core Measures Task Force is going to rationalize these measures and have fewer that everybody has to worry about. But in the meantime, there some organizations have over 200 measures, um, dozens of them just for diabetes alone with one little thing that uh, might be different that drives you crazy. But the point is, you don't know how you're doing. You can't improve. You know you only can manage what you measure. Right. And so once you have that and you put that in the hands of people not in quality, just in quality, or just in IT, or just in some high-level office, but you actually put it in the hands of people who do the work, then you can redesign workflows around that. You can help them engage with these patients, identify who they are, first of all, and, and create cohorts of patients that you could, for example, send an automated campaign to inviting them a personal invitation from their care manager to come to a group visit for diabetes. Wow, that's fantastic. I, I think about the days when I was doing some of this DM, if we had had systems like that, oh my gosh, what we could have done. But you also, what I also find fascinating is because there's this huge expertise in IBM, and obviously everyone's excited about Watson, you know, and, and even I, as I talked about you earlier, have gotten onto the Watson, Watson on the cloud yes, and set up an yes, account, and I'm yes. going to start playing with that because I think it's really amazing stuff. So that's sort of that next gen that everybody's talking about, where you're mashing up all kinds of data sets. What is that, I, and how I is that being used? I tell you more. So this is what is called cognitive analytics. So it's really trying to understand um, a lot more about um, the individual human being or a subsection of a population or entire population and really be able to use non-traditional sources of data or data that was heretofore inaccessible. So things like journal articles, things like images, things like um, uh, notes um, that somebody might put in, things like Twitter feeds, things like um, any correspondence that um, somebody might have had where you can discern all kinds of patterns and you can make um, some inferences about people's personalities or clinically you can say let's take Fred here is all of his his personal health information he may have um, be looking for a clinical trial for cancer well, we can match you up much more precisely because Watson will have all those journal articles on a continuous wow. basis and be able to not just 
pick out key words, but be able to understand the text contextually, if that's not silly to say, and yeah. be able to be able to start to determine the right and wrong ways to interpret information, so that it could then ultimately create uh, three options or some number of options for physicians and other trained experts, humans, to look at and decide um, with that information what they want to do next and then recommend which clinical trials would be available and appropriate for friends. And that is precision is a type of precision medicine that we're leading the way on. Right, and I know there's been a discussion about precision medicine, population health, are they two different things? Not, but if, when I look at it, and I think of the framework for population health, precision medicine is like the ultimate assessment tool to stratify that individual down to the end of one. You, you are just taking my playbook, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So what we say at Watson Health is that we help do population health one person at a time. Uh -huh. And it's because every human is indeed human, and people have different things going on, the least of which, frankly, is their health. Right. Uh, obviously, sometimes people's health consumes them, but over over time, longitudinally, that's not the case. And most things that impact your health happen way outside of the healthcare domain. Yeah, we've been through this for so long. We've I mean, been this, we know you're it. saying this. I'm thinking in my head about saying it. So one of the things I find fascinating with this with this ability to mash up all this data, and you talked about it from sort of the clinical perspective of identifying potential cancer treatments by bringing in all the articles and everything else. But there's also, you mentioned Twitter feeds, this and that. So understanding the individual from a social basis Absolutely. that can really potentially psychographically, you know, assess them and stratify them and figure out what might be the right intervention. Exactly. True? That's exactly right. So there are ways that Watson um, today has been um, working in different industries, including healthcare, to try and look at how people communicate, individuals communicate. So Twitter feeds is just a fun example to think about. So um, if they use certain language, if they seem positive or negative, if they are friendly or unfriendly, if they are short or long, I mean, so there are ways then that Watson can discern um, what might be appropriate communication method back to that patient or person mm -hmm. to help engage them. And so much of this, too, ties into um, the field of behavioral economics. How do we nudge people to do the right thing based on what we know about them? Yeah, what I find is most fascinating when I think back to the days of training a nurse in, you know, Prochaska's trans theoretical behavior change or patient activation measures, and it was sort of like maybe you were throwing a baseball, and now it's like you've got a precision BB and you can aim it just right. I in love essence. it. Is that sort that's of what exactly we're getting right. to? That's exactly right. That's exactly right because now there's so much more acknowledgement um, of the social determinants of health, which sounds like a mouthful. But what that really means is whether you are um, uh, of means or without means, everybody has their little ecosystem that defines them, their history, their family, where they live, where they work. Um, what they like and don't like, um, what organizations they're members of, you know, you think about it. And the social determinants of health are the things that we typically talk about because they are the hardest and most intransigent and very difficult to control. So if people live in a food desert or they feel unsafe walking in their neighborhoods or they um, don't have money for their prescription, 
So we don't have to ask them all these questions all the time. We have all kinds of data to help us guess, make an educated infer guess, that and infer all of that so that we can anticipate that Karen is going to have trouble filling her meds because she's scared to go out of her house. It's, it's amazing because I actually was looking at another booth today. One of the big companies who was showing me their care management platform and their care planning platform. And I began to delve into, okay, what are you using for that assessment tool? And you get the normal stuff. Okay, we've got the clinical data. The we got the EA, and the all that. our data and the claims data. I said, are you asking about transportation? Are you asking about home situation? See? Are you asking about caregiver? But you're uh, you're inferring that from this huge exactly. data matchup you do. You can do that, right? So that's that's the idea is to look use all of the, these types of data sources. And in fact, that's one of the reasons we um, bought the the Weather Channel was to be able to get that kind of information that impacts behavior. So so. Let me just add, so, so the Weather Channel is going to feed data into this, and maybe we can identify asthma triggers real time for an individual potentially That's off exactly a weather right. or something That's like that. That's the idea. Count. That's the idea. Wow. So it's it's really um, kind of exciting. And then how you actually feed that information to a person? Will it be all mobile? Will it be um, through a human to human contact? Will it be? Um, something that we haven't even envisioned yet. Well, it, it's just and you'll base so it on your inferred data of the best way to get that information to them. So you've essentially looked at the whole process, and and you can use this data anywhere. That's right. So do you remember, like the first stage of meaningful use, you're supposed to communicate with patients by patient preference. Well, one of the reasons that was so difficult is nobody documented patient preference, <laughs> and all that meant was home phone or cell phone. So we're we're going a long way from home, you know, home phone to cell phone choices. Well, that's so it's pretty exciting. If people are here at the conference and want to come to the booth, yes, do you have the booth yes, number. I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, Seventy-one twenty-three yes. is the um, it's marked IBM, but it is the Legacy Vital and Explorers booth. Uh -huh. And I don't remember the name of the big IBM booth, but it's not okay. far away. But 7123 is the uh, IBM Fitel at IBM Company booth. And Correct. Great. And explore well, together. I would tell people to do that, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out over the next couple of years and even longer now. And also there was an announcement today about linking in HealthKit, Apple HealthKit into uh, the IBM You know more than I do. I haven't I heard it yet. I saw the press release this morning. Well, you must be reading your hymns notes. I am trying. Yeah. Actually, that came through... Does somebody on Twitter post that up and grab it? Yeah. I did hear that was going to happen. And yeah. you know about the big acquisition we did just 10 days with ago Truven. with Reuven. Absolutely. So I am eager for that as well. I don't, um, this is, that the other thing that I'd just like to say about the whole Watson Health strategy, Fred, it's not just about, um, you know, mashing up a whole bunch of companies. We're also, just like you said, you want to get in and see what you can play with on the cloud, how you could build something yourself. The idea is to create an environment where people, companies can collaborate and take things to another level on their own. They can commercialize products, they can experiment, they can do research. The resources at IBM, I have to say, as a newcomer, are astoundingly um, fabulous. They are rich and they are intelligent and, I mean, it's just, a, it's, I couldn't even imagine how fabulous it is. You know, the Vital was one acquisition. I said, wow, that really makes a lot of sense. I looked at the Truven one and said, wow, that one really makes a lot of sense. I know the Truven folks very well. I've worked with some of the folks yeah. in the wellness industry, yeah. Ron Gessel, some other people. Oh, yeah, there. I know all those guys. And, um, and a great group. And obviously, you're with a great group, and Watson now putting together all of this. And just, I just, I mean, it, 
gets me really excited to think about the possibilities that can be done with the new computing technologies and the new ways to look at data like you talked about with cognitive computing. Do I have time to leave you with one more thought? Yes, please. Okay. So do you remember how we got to know each other? Our clients were not health systems. Our clients were employers and health plans, remember? Yes, absolutely. Well, employers now are starting to beg, beg for new ways of uh, of, of um, improving health benefits and really making a difference. Uh, they feel like they still have a brick wall uh, between them and the providers. So I don't know if you saw it. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal by Q. Ree, our chief health officer. No, it wasn't by him. Who was it? You'll have to edit this out. Um, the <laughs> Wall Street Journal had a piece. Yep. And it was talking about the um, healthcare alliance, the healthcare transformation alliance. The transformation alliance. I just talked to their CEO last week. Yeah, okay. go ahead. All right. So I think I don't I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen about that, but I do think that there is an opportunity for a triangle to come back to what we were all doing. Remember when we got so frustrated that we couldn't engage physicians? All we could do was send faxes, right. and they would go in the bin because no physician had a critical mass of employer X's patients. But now there are so many tools. Yeah. There's patient-centered medical home. There's accountable care. There's technology. I bet we're going to close that loop now. Uh, that's fantastic. So I, I just wanted to, to tell you more. that. And by the way, you just stuck an idea in my head of something I want to run through Watson and see if I can infer some stuff from it. There you so go. So that is incredible. Thank well, you thank so you. much, Karen. Thanks. I'll that see you next week. Yeah, next week. Population okay. Health Colloquium. Correct. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank okay. you. Take care. Perfect. Well, ready for the next one? Thank you, Melissa. We really appreciate you stopping by. And uh, as you probably could tell from that interview, I was very excited for the opportunity to talk to Karen and um, and discuss uh, Fitel and IBM and Watson. It's amazing stuff, if done right, that will create fantastic things of improving health. So uh, very exciting, very, very exciting. So now we'll be joined by Rick Crone coming in now. Hello, Rick, how are you? I think um, we'll wait just a second. Sorry about that. We've had somebody walk by the booth here, and uh, we're working through some of the uh, logistics here. But I think I'll probably spend a little more time later today also back up at the IBM Watson booth. They were showing some of the things they were doing around imaging, et cetera. So I guess we'll start with David. Hello. How are you? Hi. David Delaney. Nice to meet you, David. Pleasure to have you here in the booth with us. Um, we'll get this show on the road. So Doug's going to come in and take this. David, hey, Doug. Good, good to see you. you. How are you? Hey, David Delaney. We, I had the great opportunity to, to be the SAP Health launch yes. in New York with your incredible platform that is going to revolutionize uh how we bring data forward to help people heal and treat various conditions. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. How was my memory on that one? Very, very good. It's good seeing you again. It's been so a while. S- since SAP uh, Health, right? Yeah. The, the innovator. Foundation for Health. Yes. Cool. So uh, give us a quick snapshot of your background and uh, what Foundations of Health is doing. And you've got exciting organizations uh, using that platform like Women's Tennis Association, the German national soccer team. Yeah. And uh, you got a major deal with ASCO. Absolutely. So um, those are the snapshots. Give us the details. Yeah. 
So uh, Foundation for Health really takes the, uh, the goodness of HANA in terms of the ability to uh, do very rapid uh, analysis of data and also dramatically simplify it at the same time, which is uh, the challenge. I think that when you look at a lot of organizations today, a lot of organizations that are doing uh, you know, really good work in uh, analytics, it's really labor intensive. They have, uh, often you'll open in the back door and there'll be cubicle farms of analysts that have a lot of Excel right. spreadsheets open. Uh, doing a lot of uh, you know elbow grease and good old-fashioned blood, sweat, and tears to turn out some very good work. But the challenge is it's not really scalable in an approach, particularly when you're looking at generating novel insights and finding new relationships and data which are not previously understood. And what Foundation for Health does is provide uh, adapters to common healthcare uh, sources and technology, and then uh, an ingestion pipeline that will take natural language or unstructured data and text and run it through natural language pipelines, processing pipeline, apply ontologies, linguistic analysis to it, and pull it into a data model. And so it really assists in the ability to pull data together from disparate sources, whether they live within your institution externally, uh, whether they're structured or unstructured text, uh, pull them together, integrate them, and make sense of them. And that includes not only traditional uh, you know, data from EHR, but also genomic information. Uh, which is a real challenge and opportunity of how to integrate the genomic and the phenotypic information. Right, because we have not just genetic information, but we have proteomics and other microbiome and other data that we've got to organize and figure out what makes sense in the interactions of. Absolutely. I mean, the whole omic area is uh, you know, incredibly wondrously complex and, and really fertile grounds for the next breakthroughs to happen. But they really need to be informed in terms of what's going on with the patient. So really pulling those observations in from the electronic health record and also, of course, elevating it up to the level of value-based care, you need to be able to understand the cost of delivering it all, which means pulling in uh, financial information, uh, claims data, uh, you know, e even information from your human capital management uh, software. So that's the solution is called Foundations for Health? Yeah, Foundation for Health. Foundation for Health. And there's a really interesting story. There's a huge commitment by SAP in the health space. Absolutely. And your CEO had a particular personal yeah. situation that uh, is supporting that throughout the entire organization. Yeah. Can you comment on that? Cause it's yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Bill's been very open in sharing about this. So it's nothing uh, you know, new that I'm saying. But, you know, even prior to his accident, uh, his mother uh, lost a battle with uh, cancer mm -hmm. and, and he lost her, which was very hard. He was very close. Uh, and his wife uh, successfully fought uh, you know, cancer as well. And uh, you know, did okay with it. But so it's been something very personal to him. But then over this last summer, uh, he had a, a accident where he uh, actually fell down some stairs uh, with a water glass that shattered, and uh, he ended up subsequently losing his eye uh, oh. from it. It was uh, you know, and, and almost lost his life even. And so his experience through the process of it, um, you know, experiencing both the best of what individual uh, providers were able to contribute, but also the frustrations around the lack of integration of the, the data, the lack of communication. And in Bill's words, you know, who's wearing the jacket? The person who's responsible end to end for outcome and to really to ensure the best possible outcome. And the lack, oftentimes, you had you know, many, many subspecialists often offering contradictory views. Um, so it's really very much, I think, informed um, his view of healthcare and, and really has created a desire in him to help uh, leverage what SAP can bring in the market to, to make it better. So we know some of the leading sports organizations are using your platform to really achieve superior performance, like the German national soccer team. What's happening in healthcare with the first applications of, of your platform, particularly with uh, ASCO? Yeah, no, I think ASCO is a great example, and it builds on some uh, excellent work we did with uh, NCT, which is National Center for Tumors in Heidelberg, Germany. 
And, and some of it, you know, it's amazing, Doug, you know, out of the gate, how much value you can get just leveraging data that's there today, but just simply can't be brought to bear for a better decision because it lives in a variety of different formats, a variety of different locations. And so what we're able to do is use the speed and simplifying factors of Ahana to pull that data together. So, for instance, uh, at NCT, we um, worked on a project that uh, helps render better decisions around chemotherapeutic agents for patients. And what it does is starts out an electronic health record, and of course, wanting to treat a tumor, the uh, the uh, markers of it, the biologic yeah. and uh, genomic markers are very, very important. So uh, what it does is first gets those from the record. Now, of course, in the real world, that lives typically in a doctor's note or a pathology report, which is unstructured and uh, free text. And so we go through and do linguistic analysis, uh, and map it into an ontology, find the tumor markers, and then encounter another reality that all the data you want and need are not within your own four walls. And so we take those tumor markers and compare it up to a cloud registry to, uh, to uh, locate a microcord of patients who are tightly matched to the patient in question. So we match based on, of course, the, the, the genomic aspects of the tumor, but um, also the age, gender, ethnicity of the patient, uh, any phenotypic characteristics, like maybe they have diabetes or CHF, and we pull back a microcord of patients that are very much matched to that patient in question with the key difference of we know how they responded to treatment and what they were treated with. So we can generate something called a Kaplan-Meier curve, which compares survival with treatments and see for patients very much like the patient in question how they did with a variety of treatments. And so it's an example of it. We're not creating new and novel information in that scenario, but we're leveraging everything there in uh, near real time within less than 10 seconds to drive a better decision, to better essentially inform a clinician to give the, them the information that he or she would want to make the best possible decision. So to give this um, recommendation against treatments that will work based on the specific characteristics, it's hitting a registry, and that registry is international. Yeah. You're pulling yeah. from multiple sources, and those sources that are the reference for the registry are increasing every day. Exactly. Through relationships, not with just ASCO, but international organizations. They exactly. Can. Yeah, well, that example is at NCT. And yeah, I mean, this integration is growing. And when you start looking, you had other examples. Uh, you know, it's a lot of uh, data available in the public cloud. I mean, we did another example, this is outside of oncology, uh, but with a major hospital system in California who wanted to get a better handle on uh, their emergency department traffic. And of course, anyone who's been engaged with those know there's ebbs and flows. Some nights it's crazy, uh, other nights it's not. And it's sometimes hard to figure out why. And it makes a real challenge for staff to, to uh, triage and manage patients. Right. And so they started doing analysis. And of course, oftentimes, you know, uh, you know, since the X-Files are back, I can use it, you know, the answer's out there, but it's not necessarily within the data that you have within your EHR. Sometimes it's in, in other data sets. So uh, what they did was pull in data from the, the uh, public cloud around forecasting and uh, uh, pollen counts and such. And they found that when the wind is blowing across the valley, a certain direction, that there's a spike in respiratory illnesses and visits to emergency departments. So they're able to now begin to uh, manage the uh, number of providers on staff and a given night based on the weather patterns and account for that spike. That's one small example. It'll get better but over it's, time. It's but, a great example because yeah. it's, it's, it's looking at where you can take my genetic information and my proteomic information, but it, you have to look at it in context of my comorbidities or my health, overall health status, Absolutely. and the world I'm living in, my family, the way the wind's blowing, so to yeah. speak, yeah. to really build this profile to organize and manage resources and provide the best things to support my, um, my health, my fitness, and my medical care. 
Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. I mean, there's really two layers, you know, if I were to simplistically bucket it. You know, one is how can we create better value today based on just what's known but cannot be brought to the point of decision? Because, again, where it lives and and, uh, the structure in which it's at. Uh, You know, so just leveraging what you have today, and that's one level, this tremendous opportunity uh, immediately, essentially. And then the other is beginning to develop novel insights into what's going on uh, based on, uh, you know, broadening data sets where you don't yet understand where the relationships are and which ones are going to be important. So the ability to, in an agile fashion, pull in data from a weather service, from uh, someone managing pollen counts, uh, you know, wind direction, temperature curve, uh, and begin to analyze it more broadly to uh, create insights. So uh, we had the previous one of the previous guests was uh, also a physician, David uh, Nance, mm-hmm. and he's now been pulled into a company called Mark Logic, uh-huh. and we he was talking about this next generation of unstructured databases, yeah. non-relational yeah. databases versus the world we live in, which most of our data is in in healthcare and medical care is mostly relations. Yeah. So can your platform pull from this next generation of databases? That are unrelational. Yeah, you know, uh, we can we can connect to a variety of different data sources. Everything from traditional relational databases to uh, Hadoop, uh, you know, and other data sources. And you know, the way it's modeled within HANA actually is a much simplified fashion. I mean, to your point, um, the traditional you know star snowflake schemas that people would model, which makes a tremendous amount of effort to do that in the first place. And right. it also demands and presupposes that you understand relationships within the data. And so it works well when you have a data set that's well understood and you understand the questions they want to ask of it. In fact, that's how people subsequently take the data warehouse and create data marks off of that. But the real challenge is when you're taking additional layers of data in and you don't yet understand where the linkages are, it's just an incredibly inefficient way to do it. And so with HANA, we keep a very, very simple columnar model of the data. And essentially at runtime, we apply lenses that that create views of the data within seconds. And then you can review those and tweak them uh, literally with the domain expert sitting with the technical expert side by side. So what often would have been an elongated multi-month process of uh, you know meetings back and forth and long waits now can be accomplished in an hour or two with them sitting shoulder to shoulder and really having a conversation with the data, uh, asking questions, seeing the result, and rephrasing the question. So it really dramatically accelerates the ability to generate value. David, uh, SAP Health, you're doing incredible things to... Thanks, Doug. Analyze data to make it actionable for my medical care and all the other people we serve. So thank you yeah. for joining us. Thank today. you, Doc. We appreciate thank the time. You. Take care. Thanks. Next up, we got Rick Crone, longtime colleague. Rick is a uh, author who is on the cutting edge of emerging technology in health, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, we were just chatting before this that you wrote a book on health innovation. The first one came out in 2012. Yeah, and before we get too much further, I just have to make note that uh, Doug uh, Goldstein was my first boss in healthcare consulting. He gave me my start, and that's a a debt that can never be repaid. (laughs) Well, and I I love that you're... uh, I kind of got burned out on writing books back in uh, uh, 2006, 2007, but you've carried the torch forward and, and really are producing quality publications that are on the forefront of what is being used in in, health, in fitness, health, and healthcare uh, across the industry, and you did uh, the health innovation books in 2012, Right. and I contributed a chapter to your uh, next book on innovation in mobile healthcare. In mobile, and now you're right where the world is with 
uh, wearables and IoT. So tell us about the latest uh, ebook pub- publication. Well, I, I've been a, a contributor to uh, the Hims Journal since 2003, and my mandate through Hims was to write on emerging technologies. In 2010, I became sort of enamored with uh, mobile healthcare, and Hims allowed me to focus on that. On the strength of some articles I wrote, they wanted to create a footprint in mobile, which was still sort of you know embryonic. So I wrote that book on um, mobile healthcare. That was an introduction. The second book to which you contributed was in, on innovation in 2014. We now have a new book that's just being introduced today. It's an e-book, and the, the organizing uh, theme is wearables and the Internet of Things. We're really excited about this book because in addition to having what you would ordinarily find in a print version, this is dynamic, very tactile, it's multimedia, and we were able to do things with this channel of communication that we could not do in print. For instance, our final chapter is a roundtable of mobile health luminaries. We asked Eric Topol, Robert Wachter, Daniel Kraft, Jane Sarsen-Khan, Don Jones, and others to field five questions. And for the reader, this gives them an opportunity not only to see basically in, you know, in an interactive way what the experts are saying about mobile health care and where it's heading, but it also allows them to choose between those people that they're most interested in learning from, those questions that they'd like to have answered. And these are things that you can do in, an, in a digital environment that you couldn't hope to do in the print version. So we're very excited about the way so, that this book was put together. Am I actually seeing video of these experts answering the questions? Yes. So, and then I can also see the transcript? Yes. So That's powerful, man. It, it that sure is. is cool. It's very, very different. That's it's, it's really, it's, it's cutting edge stuff. And so throughout the book, we have call outs. We have, you know, we have um, embedded links. We have videos. And, you know, I appear, you know, ad nauseum throughout the book, introducing some of our contributors and, for, you know, contributing my own um, narrative. But it's something that we've not even attempted to do in the past because we thought it was too difficult to do. It's not. In fact, we self-published this book, um, whereas the others were published through HIMSS. We self-published because we wanted to do something that we thought that HIMSS really didn't have the resources to uh, to assume. So we're, our marketing um, strategy is largely through social media, through personal contacts, through you know our networks that we're encouraging to broadcast on our behalf, and it's working. It's actually very, um, it's uh, you know sort of grassroots, and we're actually getting the sort of response that we wouldn't get through through Hims or through Hims Media in the past. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. I'm saying that we're simply uh, getting access to channels of communication that ordinarily we wouldn't have expected to to, to approach. That's uh, unbelievable, and that's very exciting. In fact, I uh, there's a book uh, called Diamond Age. If you have not read it, I would suggest you read it because it really is talking about the future of the book, which is an interactive multimedia product, and that's what you've created with, and what's the title of it? The title of the book is Healthy Everything, it's kind of the catchphrase, and the subtitle is Wearables and the Internet of Things for Healthcare. Okay, and um, how do people act? What's the web, best website for them? Right, we do have a landing page where people can order the books. It's available through the uh, Apple, through the, uh, on iBooks. It's going to be on Amazon shortly. Uh, we do have a landing page, and that can be found um, through the bookstore upstairs. We have a information on the book, along with our two other uh, print uh, books on mobile health care. So there's a number of different ways to access this, and it can be actually purchased in tranches. The total book uh, has a list price of $29.99, but we've split it into three digital installments. So if you just want to learn about um, wearables, you can buy our subset of the book for wearables for the low, low price of $9.99. If you just want to learn about the Internet of Things of healthcare, that's our final section, again, for the unbelievable price of $9.99. Or you can buy all 
That's the www that I have to go to to make I'll, those I'll actually have to, I don't have it memorized, and I'll have to get back to you about that. What would be the best search string for someone to put in? It would be Rick, uh, Rick Crone, and saw that your name is. No, it, it would be um, it would be the actual title. It would be Healthy Everything Wearables in the Internet of Things because we do have a landing page for this, and okay. I'm sorry that I don't have that well, at hand. Well, search that. Right, and you can find it. Or you know, stop by the Intelligent Health Association while I'm presenting this afternoon on that topic. And I will be speaking about the book at that time. And as well. if you are at him, 16, if this is going to be archived, so yes. it will not be at him. So they'll have to do the right. search string afterwards. Right. And we will make that available. Um, but yeah, so the, uh, the 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 contributors to the book are also going to be um, presenting at the Intelligent Health Association this afternoon, and we're going to have a pretty lively discussion. We're going to be talking at a panel at 4 p.m. Uh, Dave Rue from Samsung, Anand Dyer from uh, WellDoc, and uh, Kathy McGuire from uh, Forrester. We're going to be batting the ball around about uh, wearables in the future. Of and the you get IoT. to be the moderator. Yeah, I get to kind of, uh, yeah, I get that's to. That's going to be a great yeah, panel. That's right. It's going to be a lot of and fun. What, what room? Do you know what room that's It's going to be in the Intelligent Health Association Pavilion, which is here. Um, lower I, level. Yes, at lower level. G, Hall G. It's huge. It's yes. at the back of it. It's where they're having the Intelligent Home and the Intelligent oh, Hospital demonstrations. Um, so there's going, it's going to be great. It's going to be at 4 p.m. And we're looking for a, 4 PM a standing room only audience. So uh, what's your next project after this one? Are you going to figure that out in a few months? Well, I'm, I'm not a writer by trade. Uh, I am a biz dev, strategic marketing product uh, consultant focused on mobile health care. So I am doing a lot of uh, client work, which is becoming more and more, interestingly enough, granular. Two years ago, I was doing a lot of strategy work. More so now, I'm doing product work where we're really identifying opportunities where we think that you know mobile health can actually gain traction. So it's not just apps anymore. It's not just you know wearables. We're moving more and more towards things like invisibles or implantables. And it's very forward-leaning. It's still very much um, uncertain how the market is going to mature. But we're in the middle of it, and we're very excited about where the possibilities could be. Well, I do want to contribute to your next publication. That's right. I skipped this one. Uh, I've been uh, deep in the area of omics and digital in the intersection of that. So I'd love to contribute your next project in that space. Count on it. I'm doing a lot of work with the Innova Center for Personalized Health. Uh, it's right on the Washington Beltway. We acquired the former Exxon Mobile campus. Okay. So, Rick, how do people get in touch with you for your... Uh, product development or strategy work because you're one of the best in the industry. Well, thank you, Doug. My uh, website is, uh, my URL is www.healthsend.com. The name of my company is HealthSense. That was taken, so it's healthsend.com. And yes, I, I invite inquiries from uh, people. Rick, thanks for joining us in the studio. Love to see you. Looking forward to the panel. Thank you. John Madison. Do I get to talk to John Madison, or is it my brother from another mother, Fred? It looks like I'm the guy. I should probably shut this off because it will go off. John Madison from Kaiser, you are one of the top uh, people who happens to be a doctor, helping people make sense of what's going on with this intersection of sustainability, technology, and trying to empower people to make a difference in their own lives. Thank you for joining us. Kim 16 Health Innovation Media, broadcasting live from the Conversa booth, 11334 in the lower level. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity, and, and thank you for the kind words. Um, I, I, I have an addiction to uh, trying to understand things and look at the whole picture. So, John, just off the top of your head, what's What's the 
biggest recommendation that health technologists or health executives need to do to navigate forward? What's the watchword they need? Well, I, I, there's so many. Um, I'll, I'll just pick a couple. So one is humility. Um, and I think uh, in, in the political space of interoperability, and interoperability has become a political football. It's no longer a technical or a social or cultural or a business issue. It's, it's a political issue. And it has been the political aspect that has been growing for quite some time. And I think too many people are uh, proposing that because ATMs were ubiquitous 20 years ago, uh, what's wrong with healthcare that we don't have interoperability already solved today? And I like to point out the fact that you do dollars and cents and minutes and seconds and debits and credits and accounts and identity management, and you're pretty much done right. with an ATM. <laughs> people, ha people have a few more <laughs> data more elements. There's more complexity there. Uh, let's just say there's 3.2 billion base pairs in their DNA alone. Right and how those manifest is way more complex than that. So I think that these attempts to accelerate interoperability, or worse yet, let's throw away everything we've done to date and start all over again, represents a failure to appreciate the complexity of the issues. So a little humility and a little patience is necessary to moderate a political process that, if anything, has obstructed the progress and the pace of interoperability rather than help it because it's putting too much emphasis on things that are not necessarily going to help. So that would that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing... So humility to help us address the interoperability challenge. To appreciate the complexity of the problem and respect the fact that it isn't for lack of thousands of really smart people working on this for a long time that we're, we're still having problems. And I think the reductionism of the political process to who's to blame um, has been all too convenient in the Beltway uh, to uh, attempt to reframe the whole interoperability issue in a political framework rather than understand the depth of the complexity of what we're trying to solve. And, I, and, and so... And the motivation, both business models... All the motivations are good. All right. the, everybody's but, motives are but good we have here. business models that are... I'm not, I'm not questioning or indicting the motives of anybody at right. all. What I'm saying is there's there's a, a profound lack of humility of jumping to solutions before people understand the problem. The, the second thing, the detail of the problem. Yes. The second sort of, you asked for buzzwords, so the first is humility. The second would be to really embrace the evolution from an institutional model of care or a doctor-centric model of care to a person-centric model of care. And I'm making a real distinction here because buzzwords, buzzwords, patient-centric, consumer-centric, patient activation, they sell really well, but they, they miss the point of what constitutes the human condition. We, again, it's a very similar problem, is first seek to understand before we throw solutions at a problem. And in the case of healthcare, we've been way too busy for the past 50 years having a disease-centric view, and then we finally got to a patient and then a consumer. But if you look at what Dan Buettner has done with the Blue Zones, 
where he's studied, he's used the, the principle of positive deviance, looking for communities that live longer and healthier lives. And there's a tremendous knowledge yes. base about what's involved with healthy eating, healthy sleeping, healthy uh, ex exercise. Social. Most important of all, thank you. Most social. importantly of all is social. Community. Pay attention to the health of your social. And I advise people regularly. If you're in a toxic team in a company, find another team. If there's one or two toxic people on your team, help them understand how they're killing themselves and the people around them and help bring them to a higher state of understanding what a meaningful life it consists of. But the evidence that if you live in a toxic work environment or a toxic home environment, that your impact, that the impact on your health is profound, that the science there is is like basic math and physics. It's so rock solid right. and unassailable. And and we know that early childhood experiences, the ACE studies, adverse childhood experiences done by Vince Valetti and the Centers for Disease Control 20 plus years ago, showed that the impact of our social health early in life has a profound lifelong effect, shortening length by of, of longevity by decades, shortening and complicating it with all kinds of health issues. We know that the social determinants of health profoundly influence people's health and longevity. And the thing that, that we really underestimate in all of this digital health care is to take it out of this institutional-centric, doctor-centric, patient-centric, consumer-centric view and look at the person in the community they live so that we not only get healthy eating, sleeping, and exercise, but we focus on a healthy social environment. This is, and I, and, and I spoke to this with a group of about 600 physicians on Monday. And the question was asked, you know, John, our docs are always a burden. Are you saying that they're going to be accountable for fixing all this stuff? And the answer is they are not the whole solution, but they are a critical missing link because physicians in particular, but the healthcare team in general, has a profound opportunity to reshape the discussion and reshape how we address these issues in ways that begin to get at a much more community health focus. So I like to say population health is dead uh, at Kaiser Permanente. We've, we've done a lot of great work improving the health of every one of our members through focusing on populations that carry certain diseases. But in the world of personalized medicine and in our, with our understanding of community health and what makes an individual healthy within the social context of their community, we should be abandoning the population health and going in the direction of community-based health and personalized medicine so that we know from the clinical side what's unique to that individual, but we don't forget that that individual's health is shaped as much by their genome and their exposures as it is by their social environment. And Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler have given us a gift beyond compare in the book Connected to really elaborate how critical that social influence is. So we need to re the, the the role of healthcare and healthcare teams institutions. We have an opportunity now to do something unprecedented in modern history, and that is to restore some of the use the technology to restore the ancient wisdom and bring a community focus back to how we protect children in their early years from adverse consequences. How we create a sustainable social ecosystem for health and it can't reside within the healthcare system. So the answer to the question I got on Monday is not, yes, you doctors are in charge of this, but it is very much the entire healthcare system because they're treating the consequences of neglecting all these other community health issues, 
they have a critical role to begin to catalyze a much more systematic community-based focus on health, healthy fresh food accessibility to all communities, safe walkable spaces for all communities, emphasizing healthy walking, thinking about how to use digital technologies rather than as digital nannies to say you need to take a hundred more steps <laughs> to a healthier way of thinking about every right. decision we make. So I want to zero in on, and I know you did this very specifically, you use the word person. Right. If we call people consumers and then they consume too much, we need to think about us as sustainers. My original training was environmental science, sustainability. Oh, I did some of that too. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So, we, so I think we have to start using the term sustainers or citizens who have responsibilities and people. Right. So we're beyond patients because sometimes we're patients, but we're always people. Right. Um, excellent point, and I think it's very specific. And it, if we don't change the words of the leadership These to are, recognize the, people, right. we're not going to change to moving to this social, recognizing right. that if we don't connect into the social dots, right. we're not going to shift the health of the population and improve outcomes. We've, we're a culture of buzzwords, and the narrative behind those buzzwords is very, very shallow. We need a much richer narrative in support of memes and tropes that are better represented by person-centric care that explicitly represents mind, body, and spirit and the influence of the entire community. And what Dean Ornish, one of my heroes of all heroes, has been saying for many decades is that the extent to which we express and receive love has a profound influence on our health and happiness and the decisions that we make. And there was, there was a great study published recently that took volunteers and exposed them to a cold virus. And then they looked at their Facebook feed and they did analytics on how healthy their social health was in the two weeks preceding their exposure to the cold. And guess what? The people who had health manifest in their social relationships on their Facebook feeds in the preceding two weeks were less likely to get infected from the same exposure everybody else got. And if they did get infected, they were less sick than the others. And one of the key factors that they noted is if you just counted the hugs that they had given or received or both in the preceding two weeks, it was a good predictor of whether or not they got sick and how sick they the are. The hug index. Absolutely. The hug index. Absolutely. So, uh, Incredible wisdom. Now, I think we have some barriers in our organizations and how they're organized. I'm doing a lot of work with the Nova Center for Personalized Health, and I'm trying to cut across, I don't want to call them silos, because it's how people get work done and how they, we organize the system. Cardiologists, we're a system of specialists, but getting people to talk. We were talking to Daniel Kraft about breaking down some of those barriers. What do we need to do at the leadership, the CEO level? So there's CEOs like Rod Hockman and others that I think get it, and we've created these roles as CMIOs, and certain people say they should be chief health officers, not just chief medical I, 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 I adopted both titles, so I am CMIO and CHIO. Okay. And you have supported your organization in doing that? Uh, I, I appropriated CMIO in the first place, and I've just appropriated CHIO because the M in CMIO excludes so much of the work that right. I do. Uh, I didn't feel I, I needed to socialize the fact that what the work that I do is very much about health and that the medical part of that 
is a proper subset, but it's not where the real value proposition is. So using digital health to restore ancient wisdom, to look at community-based health and support personalized medicine is what we need to be doing. That, that's, uh, and so any quick recommendations in the last couple of minutes to organizations that need to reorganize? Yes. Engage with a larger community. Start, stop looking at our navels in healthcare <laughs> and trembling over what that next regulatory threat is going to be uh, out, of, out of our regulatory process and break the mold and do what family physicians did 100 years ago and engage with the community. Engage with all the community resources at a much more explicit, deliberate level. Catalyze and sponsor and convene discussions between leaders in the educational system, leaders in the social services environment, across governmental, non-governmental, foundations, healthcare. Bring the people together and advocate for a community-based focus on health and get people talking to each other. Because if you talk to any one of these uh, entities individually, they'll all complain bitterly about how it's so hard for them to do the work because the other players in the community are dropping their ball. How do we create smooth handoffs and coordinated community services that allow us to really get at the social determinants of health in a collective and collaborative way? It's not happening. It happened back in tribes tens of thousands so of years ago. So try. It happens in small towns across the world today. It happens massively in blue zones, and it's been lost partially because of the technology leading to isolation and loneliness, and loneliness is a profound risk factor for health. We need to, there are, there are people who are homebound across the street from other people who would love to help and don't even know that their neighbor's homebound right across the street. So how do we create social interactions in the community across the various services and organizations to begin to link people in need. So it's what I call harvesting excess and latent compassion and applying it because there's need everywhere. There's willing people who want to lead meaningful lives everywhere, who feel like they're banging their head against their professional wall every single day. And if we can unlock that latent compassion and release it on communities at large, and begin to connect people, um, those with needs and those who want to provide. And, and I'll, I'll end this frame by saying that Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize winner, once said, if you're feeling helpless, help somebody. We need to use technology to systematize. And the best example I've seen yet is there is a new website just launched in the last week in the EU to provide the equivalent of Airbnb and Uber and all social services to the Syrian refugees. So that through a matchmaking system online, families who want to help can get connected with families that they are in need help. of help and connect them through transportation and medical care and social services and that's bring the world example. together. And I believe that that's gonna set a precedent for what we can do at scale in every community in the world. And at the recent impact conference, Senator Kennedy uh, was bemoaning how much stress he endured as a child despite being a member of the Kennedy family, in some cases because being a member of the Kennedy family, and how isolating it was 
when he had significant needs as a child and the impact it had on him. And his point was, this crosses all socioeconomic boundaries. Right. If it can affect the Kennedy family, it can affect anyone. So we need to think about this not as somebody else's problem. It is our collective problem as responsible members of our community. And healthcare has a critical role to play. And we've been so struggling with the regulatory environment within which we live and the time pressure within which everything exists and with the financial constraints of the system and the perverse incentives, particularly in the fee-for-service world, that we have dropped the ball on what problem we're trying to solve. We should expand our horizons on what problem we're solving, engage, catalyze, inspire, and this can be done, this will happen. So you opened with the word humility. Yes. And I'm going to open with uh, a short close with a short phrase. Let's not be so serious and let's make it fun because if we do that, we'll create community. And I would like to agree wholeheartedly with that and recognize that there are four things that lead to a meaningful life. One is having a skill that you believe is useful. Second is feeling that you're making a positive impact on your community, whatever that is, whether it's your peers in a nursing home or whether it's your friends or family or community. The third is feeling appreciated for what you do. And the fourth is practicing the discipline of gratitude. And so fun is a part of that, but feeling like you're helping your community and feeling appreciated for it and being grateful for what you have can transform the culture of epidemic anxiety, depression, and fear that we live in today. That is the closing word. Thank you, John. Thank that you very unbelievable much. unbelievable and Thank extremely you. articulate. Can you repeat that last thing you just said? The epidemic of depression. Anxiety, depression, depression, loneliness, and fear. We need to replace with a culture that embraces appreciating people for what they do and practicing the discipline of gratitude. That's wisdom from Health Innovation Media. Tim 16, John Madison, one of the leading uh, humans, person, <laughs> trying to make a difference so we understand appreciation and gratitude is the key thing that we need to do going forward, regardless of what technology we use. Thank and we you, can John. Have fun and humility while we do it. Thank, Thank you, John. you very much. So. Fred, are you going to come in and chat with me? Are we still on the air? Do we have someone waiting? Do we have somebody coming to wait? We do. We I think we're going? waiting for one more that we have coming. So, I believe we you know, hope John could have been the easiest guest I ever had because you only have to ask him one question and sit back for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, the guy the could. flow of uh, consciousness there is... Uh, Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> And not, it's just not uh, it's just not a flow it's it's wisdom deep wisdom deep wisdom based on deep experience at Kaiser he's been one of the leaders in the Kaiser system for many many years yep. so we're sitting here what we got a, another 15 minutes or so of broadcast time today and after this what's the plan for the rest uh, of the day well you know what we got a we got it's not going to be live but we're going to go up and look at what Northrop Grumman's doing in the whole area of uh 
keeping us safer, safer with uh, cybersecurity. Interesting, because I thought they made airplanes. I mean, what's up with them here at HIMSS? Well, they they have a, a, a large footprint helping uh, FDA, HHS, Defense Health Agency, and uh, others in the federal government to improve their systems. So there's a huge system integration capability and uh, expertise in specific domains ranging from, uh, in fact, they developed some of the first blue button applications to help veterans really? uh, download their, vet, their uh, health their information data, yeah. in, a, in an actionable and understandable way as opposed to just asking files. Fantastic. When you think about all the issues we face with the uh, hacks of healthcare data, uh, it seems to get bigger every day and is important stuff. Uh, you know, that I've heard that the healthcare data is the most valuable information that you can sell in the black market. Well, and uh, it's the number one item, I believe, regardless of what the HIMSS survey came out, it's the number one item on there. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. How are you doing? Chris Edwards. Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. You were rocking the rocket at Savannah the other night? Good. So, is, uh, am I doing this, Chris? You want me to stay in the driver's seat? We're going to have my brother from another mother, uh, Fred Goldstein. Are you sure it's not the same mother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're live streaming? We are live streaming here from him, 16. And we are joined today by one of the new companies that's cranking away. And Chris, good to have you again. Hey, great to be marketing here. Marketing officer of Validic. Um, it seems like every time I turn around, I'm reading something new about Validic, exciting new stuff, which is great. It is. You know, very exciting. Um, so this will be a good chance to get a better feel for where you guys are at and what you're doing. Funny, this morning, actually, I was meeting with one of the really big vendors who was showing me that they had integrated wearables. Yes. And they were showing one company. And I said, excuse me, are you just linking directly? Or have you begun to look at a company like Validic as oh. an aggregator, which sort of stunned me. So, you know, it's nice to see that. Not only are you growing, but I can see a ton of opportunity. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing and where yeah, you're at. Yeah, and so for, for the listeners as well, I'll do a quick little, uh, you know, who is Validic, right. and then talk a little bit more about what we're up to and talking about what's going on at HIMSS for us as well. So uh, so for those folks that don't know about Validic, Validic is the uh, industry's leading digital health platform. What we do is we take over uh, device data from 250 different types of devices and apps. These are devices like blood glucose meters, spirometers, apps, fitness trackers and that data, and we will take that data and we'll normalize it and standardize it to make it actionable for our clients. And so who are some of those clients? And clients are hospitals and health systems and EMR vendors like Meditech and Cerner and InterSystems. And then there's also wellness companies that will talk about taking the data, using the data and, and for to run wellness programs. And then what's been exciting is recently uh, pharma organizations and CROs uh, are starting to take the data and use it to run clinical trials. And so uh, it, our, our industry is in an exciting place right now, and it's, it's great for, for Validic to be a part of it right now. Yes, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what you got to earlier, which is you've aggregated 250 different devices. So, and I know I've been at your website and things, it's fairly easy to then connect to Validic, right? So then you can get access yes. to that big pipe what you want. Is that sort of yeah, how it works? Yeah, so when you think about the entire universe of what's happening right now with, with, with Validic is when we have all these devices, and I'll talk a little bit about a new product that we just launched as well. It's, it's pretty exciting. 
would even expand the ecosystem even more. But we have hundreds of clients right now that with a client population reach of about 223 million in 47 countries. And, and we wake up every day with the one focus. Uh, that's what we do is we take that data, we'll aggregate it, we'll integrate it. Uh, Frost and Sullivan just recently gave us a, an award for best healthcare information interoperability. Uh, and, and that's really what is exciting of what's going on right now in the, in the industry. And you mentioned also you normalize the data because they're all sort of coming in from these different devices. So you help to ensure that what's coming out on the other side to the user is yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question because that is really a, a lot about the value that Validic brings. And it was interesting, even today in a session, uh, Dr. Joe Cavadar from Partners Healthcare was giving a, a, a great talk, and he's a, he's a, certainly a thought leader in the space. And, and he was talking about connected health and the Internet of, of Healthy Things. And he said in his presentation, he flashed up a slide, he says, really, there's, there's a lot of uh, needs right now that the market has to be able to be transformed, but there's a company out there, he cited Validic, put a Validic slide up there, and it, and it showed just what you, what you outlined about how Validic is integrating all this data and trying to normalize it. Because you think about, let's just use steps for an example, you know, steps from a Fitbit are different than steps from a Jawbone. And so, so we're taking, you know, blood pressure monitors, blood glucose devices, all of that data coming off the devices is coming off a little bit differently. So, so what a hospital like, like Kaiser or Sutter Health or UPMC, one of our, you know, these are clients of ours. What they don't want to do is they don't want to spend time, money, and resources worrying about device, you know, maintenance and integration and interoperability. They just want to plug into one, you know, one solution like a Validic and, and they're done. And they don't have to think about it. And also, as a provider, they want to ensure that what the feed they're getting is the right feed, it's yeah. the right data. So you're ensuring that as well. As you pull yeah. This stuff yeah. So we're at, we're an FDA class one medical device data delivery system, and so um, all of that information is, is highly is de-identified. It comes through in a certain way. It's all HIPAA compliant, and so and it comes through in an actionable way. I mean, that is the key for us because if data just for data's sake is not going to get this industry really accelerated. And so that's why we spend time with our development team and to really make this data actionable. And whether that comes right into the EHR, whether it comes into a patient portal, whether it comes into a population health analytics tool, uh, it's really, you know, that's why we see so many different types of clients who, who, who look, who are trying to solve that data aggregation integration and they come to find a Validic and, and they say, great, you've already done that. You've already done that part. Right, and just plug in. And I, I look at this from a population health perspective, and I say to myself, so much of healthcare is outside of the care, for the walls yeah. of the care system, and so that data is just incredibly useful. Uh, I would imagine providers, I and mean, I always tell them this, whether it's actually understanding what's happening with them, but also sort of giving you insights into how they live, so you can better interact with them as well to try and drive behavior in a certain way. Yeah, that's great insight, and that's exactly what we're seeing as well. Again, uh, Dr. Jokovita wrote an article just on Friday talking about, hey, doctors, it's time for us to really think about patient-generated health data and not think of it as bad, okay? And really start to embrace that idea of this could be very inform interesting information. And, and what we're seeing a lot of our, our hospitals and health providers and working with doctors is, is saying, okay, guess what? If I have a certain part of my population that is trying to 
uh, create a patient profile and I want to know, I want to know they might be diabetic, so I want to know their blood glucose reading, I want to know their weight, I want to know have they been act, you know, active, and so they're starting to triangulate a lot of this data mm-hmm. to build these profiles so that they can take the data in an easy way to make decisions on. And that's what's exciting for us because, again, data just for data's sake is not going to get us to where right. we need to go. The other area I find interesting is you're actually a consumer-centric program because in, when I think about, let's talk about someone with diabetes. So the old days was we're gonna we're gonna monitor these people in their home, and everyone's got to have the same device. Mm. And now you're essentially allowing the consumer to be a BYOD. That's right. right? Yeah, great, great, great. You're you're on your game today. This is fantastic. I've, I've been, been in this field for I, a long I was time. Gonna say, man, <laughs> these, are, these are very insightful questions, and this is this is. Uh, this is uh, this is this is really exciting because we are a device agnostic and platform agnostic uh, digital health platform. That's what it has to be. That's what the industry needs mm-hmm. us to be. Uh, and 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 so much of the care is being done outside the four walls of the hospital. You know, we can't have a, a hospital trying to run you know special population health analytics, but only people using iOS. You know, right. that just can't happen. I mean, you think about. And, and, and there's a whole bunch of market correlations about, you know, tr- looking at the data and, and the, the need for these folks with chronic uh, uh, conditions and trying to help them. Well, they might be on Android. Okay, so we have to make sure that, uh, that what we're delivering is agnostic. And, uh-huh. and that's what we do, and that's why so many of the organizations like working with us. And so, I mean, I think of thousands of use cases for what you've got. Right. So there's the wellness use case. You talk about, you know, fitness trackers. Um, there's the chronic disease management use case. We're going to manage people with diabetes or asthma or some right. other heart failure in their home. And then you have maybe even really heavy in-home monitoring. Yes. But I know you've got some stuff you recently announced regarding when you don't have something that necessarily feeds into the system. Is that right? right? Yeah. So tell, yeah. Me, tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, thing. yeah. So, so uh, this is really interesting. So, yeah, so our, um, we just launched a product called VitalSnap. Uh, at the Consumer Electronics Show uh, last month, and so, and, and candidly, our phone's been ringing off the hook with this thing, which <laughs> is imagine. which is which is the. If you think about, you know, today, you know, kids are using Snapchat, folks are taking pictures of their checks for deposits or, or just to review their financial data, and what this is is this is a, a, an app that will live on your phone. But again, it'll live in a hospital or health systems app, okay? So again, Validic is behind the scenes, right. business-to-business play, but we're trying to help our, our clients further their patient engagement strategies and their insights. And so this really is uh, as simple as taking it, using your phone, looking at the device, the blood glucose meter, et cetera, pick any device, you will hover your phone over the device reading after taking it and you take a picture. And so it uses OCR, patented technology for health device data, and it is really that simple. If we were, if we were, I mean, I could show you this here. I know we're hearing most of yeah. this from our audience, but I mean, it is that simple. It's so very you can essentially tell an individual, no, you already have a weight scale in your home. You don't need to buy a Bluetooth-enabled one that's or a LinkedIn right. one, LinkedIn, one that's linked into your system. That's and right. And you could take a picture of yourself weighing yourself on the scale, and that will feed through your system that's right. to the provider that's DMR. That's exactly or right. That's exactly that's right. Awesome. And when you think about it, you know, and again, part of what drove it was that there's probably 70% of all the devices out there today are not connected, okay, because they've been in homes for years. You know, they're old devices. They're not Bluetooth-enabled. So this solution, Validix VitalSnap, allows you to do just that. And, and now you're, the doctors are able to see the data, 
you know, again, you think about all those 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 folks, those patients who keep track of logs on the, you know, right. and try to bring that in. No, this is done. You take take a picture of it, done, and sent off immediately and used. Wow. And I, you know, because I, I came from the Medicaid space where I did a lot of disease management. Medicaid and it always was. Well, they just don't have this stuff. True. So, but they do have some of these things. But maybe they don't have the latest and greatest that's gadget right. that's linked in. But you can now serve the underserved populations with your product by a product like yeah, that. What do you want to tell the underserved population? Now go out and spend $150 on a device just to, so it can be Bluetooth connected? Right. We don't want to have them do that, right? We want to be able to say, it's simple. You already have a device. Here's vital, Validic Vital Snap. Use it. Click it. Boom, you're done. Well, fantastic. We're coming up on the last minute or so of the show today. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming in today. What booth are you guys in if people want to come so, talk to you? Yeah, so, it's so, uh, so we are, I talked about us being agnostic. We are booth agnostic here so at you're here, so, going <laughs> so, around. So we have a, an, a small army of folks meeting with clients. Um, we were in the Phillips booth. Phillips is a new client of ours. That was a new announcement, and they wanted us to come into their booth, and so we spent some time talking about our solution earlier. We've been in the Meditech booth. We've been in the Cerner booth. We've been right. in a lot of different booths. So we are moving around uh, so meeting with So people want to get a hold of you. What should they do? They should call or email hello at validic.com. Perfect. Email hello at validic.com. Well, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much it. for joining us this yeah. week on Health Innovation Media. Yeah, thank you. Great. Okay. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.